good evening. Um, welcome to what is the last in a, a short series uh, that I've been offering about London on screen. It seems to me it's a very appropriate thing to be doing here in the Museum of London, which used to host, in fact, some years ago, a, a marvellous series of screenings of London films. So I'm very, very glad to be able to bring film back into the offering of the museum. So just to, um, for the benefit of those who perhaps missed them, <laughs> um, to explain what I've been trying to do, in the first of these lectures, I talked about the idea of Gothic London, recreating the ancient city, a sense of the ancient city, and gave some examples of that. In the second talk, I really focused on Robert Paul, the founding father of London filmmaking, uh, about whom I've written a book and got an exhibition running, and I'll say a little bit more about that uh, at the end. Uh, and that's really to give a sense of where filmmaking began in London and how in many ways London was a perfect subject for the beginning of moving pictures as entertainment. So in this third lecture, I'm going to be talking about um, London on screen in the 1960s, which is a, a rich subject, of course. Um, we could have a whole series devoted to it, but we're just going to try and squeeze it into about 50 minutes. And my point really is that it's a lot more varied and more complex than it's sometimes made out to be. If you say 60s British cinema, you tend to get a very narrow range of films that are regularly cited. Of course, it's a huge panorama, many of which we don't know today because they've slipped out of sight. Um, but I'm going to talk about mostly better-known films for the time being. And let me plunge in, plunge you into um, the... Uh, 60s with a film that was made in 1959 but um, appeared on the screen in 1960 and proved incredibly controversial. This is Michael Powell's film Peeping Tom. Now it came at a time before the scandals that we think of as having marked the 1960s, defined the 1960s, erupted before the um, Profumo Affair, Christine Keeler, before the trial of Lady Chatterley, before the rise of Mary Whitehouse and the protests that she organised against what she considered to be the immorality of mainly television um, rather than film. Peeping Tom was a, a shocking film for people in 1960. It, it's sometimes difficult to believe and um, understand why this film so shocked especially newspaper critics um, back in 1960, but it did. Uh, I compiled an anthology of the critics' comments on the film, which has since been widely circulated, and really they didn't like it at all. The only way to deal with this film, wrote one, uh, is to flush it down the toilet. Uh, deeply offensive, and I think it tells us something about the climate of 1960, perhaps, that a film like this could touched so many sensitivities, so many raw nerves. I've written a lot about that. Some of you may know um, some of the huge literature that's grown up around Peeping Tom, uh, which is one of Martin Scorsese's favourite films uh, and a great inspiration to him. But what I'm going to focus on is something rather different this evening, and that's the location of that opening of the film. Uh, the film, in many ways, is modern Gothic, 
I would describe it. It's a continuation of the kind of story that Robert Louis Stevenson largely invented in uh, Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde. Uh, it's set in contemporary Soho or Fitzrovia, if you like. And what, it, what scandalized the critics of 1960, I think, was that it linked the filmmaking impulse with other dangerous impulses, including voyeurism, taste for pornography, etc. We might say that it crossed the line between pandering to an audience's baser instincts and confronting them, that's us, the viewers, um, with our unhealthy interests in cinema and perhaps in the content, the opening content of the film. Now, that's a rather modern rationalisation of why the film created such a scandal in 1960, before all of those other scandals of the 1960s broke. But where was the film actually shot? Well, this passageway, as you may recognise there, um, is Newman Passage, which runs off Rathbone Place uh, into Newman Street. It features in one of the posters, one of the contemporary posters, you see the kind of brickwork of the poster, and that gives it a kind of gothic inflection. The passageway is still very much um, in use. If you go there any lunchtime, you'll see um, dozens, hundreds of people pouring through it because it's an important kind of link in the lunchtime sandwich shop trade, shall we say. Um, why did Michael Powell use that for the opening of the film? Well, one of the reasons, quite simply, is that he knew Soho and Fitzrovia very well. He'd begun his own career as a filmmaker, in fact, um, quite close to here, um, in, near Charlotte Street. So he knew the streets and the alleyways of London extremely well, and it seemed to him an obvious place to um, set this wonderful opening to the film where we see Mark Lewis, uh, the obsessed, obsessive cameraman, intent on completing his documentary about what fear looks like. The Newman Passage, which you see up there on the left, we see it again the morning after when he goes back to take some more shots for his film. He's trying to make a documentary about what's what the process. And some of the other scenes in the film up there, um, that's the corner of Rathbone Street and Percy Street, and there you see him looking down on that same corner with his camera. So it's a film which is intimately connected with a sense of North Soho um, in, in 1960. We don't, and, and indeed the locations for the film have become places of pilgrimage. Um, many weeks you will see people who have come from far and wide to see Newman Passage, to be photographed standing in it, because the film, of course, has got a, a cult reputation today, and you can actually visit one of the key locations. This is um, a house on, on Melbury Road, which uh, is, was where Michael Powell lived at the time he made the film, and if you know the film, the house that the young cameraman lives in as a kind of tenant of his, in his own house is actually directly opposite that. Um, we don't see much of external London in the film, but what we do see is very carefully chosen. They convey a sense of the modern city that's also steeped in tradition, like that 18th century passageway at the beginning. Um, so there's a sense in which the film is negotiating between the Gothic aspect of London and the London of 1959, 1960, the, the modern London. And that's one of the things that 
London films often do. If they're not trying to be wholly in historical period, they're negotiating between the past and the present that we know. Now, I want to take another near contemporary film which seems to me extremely interesting in its use of locations. And that's a film by a visiting filmmaker, Roman Polanski. This is his second feature film, uh, a young Polish filmmaker who had had a wonderful breakthrough with his first film, Knife in the Water, fled Poland, left Poland, along with several others of his generation because of the sense of restriction that they felt during the, the communist period. And Polanski had a, an amazing start in his Western career by coming to Britain and making two films in fairly rapid succession, Repulsion and Cul-de-sac. And they really did make a contribution to the, the new wave of British cinema, which reminds us how important foreign filmmakers have always been. Coming to Britain, coming to London with fresh eyes, looking at it without a sense of tradition, finding in it a canvas, a palette, which they can use for their own purposes. Repulsion is particularly interesting. This is a, an image of the young Polanski there in the centre with Catherine Deneuve, um, one of the actors, um, showing them what he wants. It's a low-budget horror movie. I'm not going to show you any of the horrific parts of it where the Catherine Deneuve character goes mad in her mansion flat apartment when her, her sister goes away. That's very interesting indeed. But what I'm going to show you is one of the relatively few moments when the film takes to the streets and shows us a different view of London from anything else that we see in this period. You may recognise the location. It's um, just outside South Kensington Tube Station, Thurlow Place. Um, and that's uh, an image that, that one of the many people interested in London film locations has put together. That's Thurlow Place then and now, as it were. And as you can see, it hasn't really changed very much at all. When I go there, as I quite often do, when I'm going north to the museums or down to the French uh, Institute, uh, I always have a sort of fleeting memory of this moment in the film. It's a view which nobody else, no British filmmaker, I think chose to show. It's a view of a contemporary modern London. It's the London which the central character, Catherine Deneuve, is about to retreat from into the flat, take refuge and uh, in, live out her, her psychosis. It is interesting also, I think, because what Polanski does, and this is something he does brilliantly in, in all his films since this moment, is he takes the everyday blandness of the modern city, in this case, Deneuve stops, looks down, and suddenly she sees a crack in the pavement. And that crack um, becomes a symbol of the crack-up which she, in fact, is undergoing herself. It's very simple, it's very cool, it's not exaggerated, um, but the film pauses and we get a premonition of what she is about to experience. I think it's an extremely interesting example of a very modern form of symbolism that Polanski deploys. And in a sense, you could say that um, the 60s, 60s cinema is very often about portraying cracks in the facade of London. Now, if we step back and look at the wider panorama, I'm not going to go into this in any sort of detail, 
I mean, the first thing to say is that 60s cinema, of course, in Britain is predominantly known for moving out of London. If there is one thing that many people know about it, it is that a succession of films, starting with Room at the Top, Saturday Night and Sunday Morning, entirely shot on location in Nottingham, A Kind of Loving, so, uh, all of these were shot in northern Midlands and northern cities. And that became a sort of defining characteristic uh, of, of 60s British cinema, and, and one that was highly prized uh, and much celebrated around the world. Another new direction that 60s cinema took, of course, was fueled by the boom in British pop music. And so you get a succession of films built around bands, the Beatles, most obviously, with, and that's very much a London film, despite them being uh, from Liverpool. Uh, Jerry and the Pacemakers is very much a Liverpool film about another band. Catches If You Can, actually made in Bristol by, by John Borman, and a very interesting film, uh, which I would recommend to you if you don't know it, which has only become available recently, uh, What a Crazy World, shot in the East End of London, very much on the streets, by the same cameraman, Otto Heller, who shot Peeping Tom. Very interesting example of a forgotten film that has recently resurfaced. So, and there's a third kind of film, of course, which is films that showcased uh, swinging London. And they often overlapped with the, the second of the two categories. This is the famous cover of Time magazine, which proclaimed London the swinging city. And so it was official because Time had said it was. People paid attention to things like Time magazine in those days. Um, and there's a, a, a cornucopia or torrent of films which are, you sort of feel they're trying to live up to the reputation which had emerged of London as the swinging city. There's Smashing Time, there's Georgie Girl, and of course there's Darling, which in many ways is the, the epitome of this trend. But I would point out that Swinging London takes place on the Victorian foundations of the city. And it often finds new and creative ways of making this seem new and interesting, as in the vogue in the 1960s for recycling vintage clothing and retro imagery. So a classic example of this montage of the old uh, and the new would be the film that seems to have come to epitomise Swinging London, and that's um, Blow Up by Michelangelo Antonioni. Now... Uh, Blow Up is a film which has generated an enormous amount of um, celebration, reflection, um, imitation. Uh, I was astonished uh, when I came to look at this recently, thinking about this talk, to discover just how much there is on the internet about Blow Up. It has become a whole subject in its own right. Um, we need to scrape away a few of those layers if we want to get down to what blow-up meant in 1966-67. Here is the original poster, which is actually very, very stark, very modernist. <coughs> I'm sure Antonioni, coming from Italy, wanted it to be that way. It certainly is the opposite of those psychedelic posters that we were looking at a moment ago. It, it couldn't be starker. And this is the, um, the bare description of it uh, on an online film poster website, which really nails it in very simple terms. A mod London photographer seems to find something suspicious uh, in the photos he's taken of a mysterious beauty in a desolate park. 
Hmm. Well, of course, there is a lot more to the film than that. Those are the bare essentials, the externals of it. That's the first shot after the credits. Where are we? We're not in a place that most people in London would recognise. It's a new architectural development. It was known then as the Economist Plaza. The Economist magazine had its buildings, its offices in the plaza. It's in St James's. It's one of the relatively few examples of modern architecture in Britain at the beginning, in the early part of the 1960s. I think it was opened in 62 or 63. Um, no, no, sorry, 64. I got it right. <laughs> and this montage of a jeep, hippie student types who are somehow not English, in fact they are mostly French and Italian, um, a mime, a mime troupe, but in the modernist setting of a new building which has been grafted onto the traditional fabric of London. And then there's a typical street and there's an unexpected punctuation, two or three shots later, of two nuns who pass by. Surely that must be Antonioni wanting to give a slightly off centre view of London. And then we are on to our meeting with the central character, Thomas. Now, the, there are many layers of interest in, in Blow. One of the layers of interest, I think, is the montage it makes of unfamiliar uh, venues and sites, parts of London. Now, this is Consort Road, South London. It's a, a railway arch. And what we see in this sequence is Thomas coming out of what's clearly a, a hostel for the homeless, where he has been spending the night so that he can photograph the homeless uh, for presumably a, a Sunday colour supplement type spread about you know, making poverty look slightly glamorous. Uh, he then jumps into his open Rolls Royce, uses an early version of a mobile phone, which is like enormous, and drives to his studio, which is in a muse, of course, and was in fact the studio of a real photographer of the period, a fashion photographer. And so it's absolutely authentic. What we're seeing here is the, exactly the kind of place that a trendy photographer like Thomas would live. So what Antonioni has done, with the help of his art director, Ashton Gorton, is to create um, a view of London on the cusp of modernization. This is swinging London, absolutely in the heart of swinging London, full of orgies, parties, fashion photography, music, everything that made London a glamorous and exciting place. We see it all in the film, but in a slightly distanced, slightly um, slowed down way. David Hemming said in an interview once that uh, when he saw the film for the first time with Antonioni, Antonioni turned to him and said, you didn't like it, did you? And Hemming said, well, the problem was he found it rather slow. He found the sense of distance that Antonioni had introduced into the film a little disappointing. Of course, you could argue that's what has made the film live on and, and become the great success that it is in retrospect. But it's a foreigner's view of London. Ashton Gorton's job which is why he's credited as art director rather than production designer, was to take Antonioni around London to show him places. I knew Ashton Gorton a little towards the end of his life and I kicked myself for not having asked him why he took him to certain places. We do know that in some cases Antonioni repainted the street, 
Um, he made a few interesting changes in the locations. They're not simply found locations. But what went on between Gorton as a native Briton and Antonioni as somebody who didn't know London at all, I think is, is fascinating because it's, it's a kind of creative reworking of London which we see on the screen. And of course, the, the climax of the film, well, it's, it's the focus of the film early on in the narrative, and then it becomes the climax, is uh, a nondescript park in South London, in Woolwich, called Marion Park. Marion Park has a, a whole mythology associated with it now because the film was partly filmed there. And with, um, with uh, some Gresham uh, staff, with uh, Oliver and James, we made a little pilgrimage to Marion Park a few weeks ago. I'd never been, and I wanted to see this place of legend. And uh, that's the image that you see in the film, which of course is Antonio only doing what he'd already done in Rome, because his previous film but one, L'Eclisse, The Eclipse, one of the great early art films of the 1960s, shows a Rome that you've never seen on screen before. In fact, many people doubted that it was Rome, because the kind of <coughs> locations that Antonio only found are simply not what we associate with landmark Rome. So he was doing the same in London, and for his own reasons, what he wanted was a relatively anonymous park. I'm going to show you just a, a sequence that includes our friends in the Jeep from the opening of the film. This is actually the, the end of the film, and that park. I have to tell you, it hasn't changed. The, the tennis court is exactly as you see it in the film. I don't know whether it's been refurbished to look like that or not, but it is. Uh, and I spent a bit of time pacing around pretending to be, um, to be uh, the, the actor, David Hemmings. <laughs> Unsuccessfully, I think. Um, it was the glamour of London at this time that, as portrayed by photographers, uh, <coughs> fashion photographers that had attracted Antonioni uh, to, to come and work here. And what strikes the visitor, I think, when you go to Marion Park is how much the park seems to retain something of the same emptiness that we see in the filmic representation of it nearly 50 years later. There's a famous line from an interview with Antonioni at the time the film came out when he was asked to explain the, the puzzling business of the apparently um, uh, disappearing figures in the park and this game of mimed tennis without a ball, uh, which Thomas seems to accept as real. Antonioni said, I'm not trying to show reality, but to ask what reality is. And this was a theme, of course, that ran through um, a fair amount of 60s cinema, and not just in Britain by any means. Um, you see it in Antonioni's great breakthrough film of 59, uh, La Ventura, at the top there. You see it in last year at, Mar at Marienbad, L'année dernière à Marienbad, in the middle. And you see it perhaps most... Um, strikingly in, in British filmmaking in uh, Nicholas Rogue and uh, Donald Campbell's film Performance, which came out in 1970. What these and other films of the period were doing, it seems, was cutting loose from the contract that had underpinned a lot of mainstream cinema that were being shown a series of real places, irrespective of how they'd been created for the screen. In Blow Up and in Performance, the setting is very obviously contemporary London, and both films made a lot of use of 
these carefully chosen, essentially unfamiliar parts of the environment. But the aim of the films was not to convey an overall impression of London. It was to take us on a metaphysical journey that leads viewers to question the coordinates of reality. And it's certainly significant that both of these films were strongly influenced by the uh, teasing self-consciousness of two Argentinian writers who were hugely fashionable in the 1960s, Julio Cortázar on the left there and uh, Jorge Luis Borges on the right. Uh, both the blow-up is actually distantly based on a short story by Cortázar and uh, Borges is frequently referenced in performance and was very much um, part of the inspiration of the film's play with reality and illusion. Now, there are other London-set films from this period that do something similar, though in different registers. And I'll just pick out three which I think are particularly uh, interesting and significant. The Knack and How to Get It on the bottom left there was probably the less, least well-known of these three. A very, very interesting film directed by Dick Lester, who'd made A Hard Day's Night, and um, designed, in fact, by the same Ashton Gorton. So he has quite a, a stake in the creation of the 60s on the screen. Then we have John Schlesinger's <coughs> film, Darling, the top there, in which Julie Christie becomes an icon of the 60s, a sort of neo-Hogarthian parable of the folly, follow, the folly of um, amoral careerism. And then we have Joseph Losey and Harold Pinter's collaboration on The Servant in 1963, which casts a Chelsea house as the epitome of a changing world, as the master and the servant, Dirk Bogard, James Fox, essentially exchange places. And then we come to another key film of the era, which I find increasingly interesting, which is The Ipcress File. Uh, the Ipcress File was a sort of anti-Bond film, and yet it was created by many of those who had actually created the James Bond films. Um, the producer, Harry Saltzman, was one of the two architects of the Bond series. Um, the designer of the film was Ken Adam, who had given the look to the early Bond films, had really created the image of Bond on the screen. This, too, was designed by Ken Adam, and it's a very, very different look at the uh, world of... Uh, espionage, counterintelligence. It's a film which turns on themes of brainwashing, identity, and alienation, ultimately, with, Harry, uh, with, with Michael Caine cast as Harry Palmer, Len, uh, Len Dayton's uh, anti-Bond figure. I noticed in the paper today that, that that outpost of MI6, which has recently been unveiled, was in fact um, linked with the figure of Harry Palmer, so maybe uh, Len Dayton knew something about what was going on behind the scenes, the reality of counter-espionage. It's a very, very, very interesting film. It's a film which, in many ways, echoes some of the themes that we find in continental films of the 1960s. It's another of those films that has emerged into our era for us to look at and uh, interrogate and understand better, perhaps, than people at the time. Now, what I'm calling... This metaphysical trend in a number of 60s London films did not obviously go unchallenged um, at the time because the mid-60s also saw a counter-movement emerge which rejected swinging London and all it stood for and tried to show the grim economic and social reality that lay behind the period's glamour. 
And perhaps the best way of uh, making that clear is simply to look at the key film which launched this trend, and that's um, Kathy Come Home, Ken Loach and Tony Garnett's film uh, from 1965-66, which was not a cinema film. It was made for TV. It was what was quaintly described by the BBC at this time as a play. It was in a series called The Wednesday Play. It was hugely watched when it was first transmitted, so much so that it was rapidly repeated. And it has been worked out that something like half the entire population of Britain saw it over its first few screenings on television. So this reached actually vastly more people than a cinema film would reach. It marked a very important moment in the changing dynamic of relations between television and cinema. From this point onward, cinema in Britain would be taking cues from what was happening on television. It was a very fertile creative period in British television, helped by the arrival of a second channel, BBC Two, uh, which gave the BBC, if you like, two barrels and the possibility of making some very interesting, quite avant-garde films. From that point onwards, I think British cinema is looking over its shoulder, drawing on television, and of course Ken Loach himself would make the move from his work in television, which is where he'd started with Cathy Come Home and with Up the Junction, there on the left, to making his first feature film, Poor Cow. His early career in cinema was not anything like as successful as his television career had been, but of course it was the start of a, a long and, I think, glorious career. Poor Cow, interestingly, Loach's first cinema film, is deliberately a critique of the damage caused by the swinging London era. Its central character is, is a casualty of swinging London, if you like. And so um, I think it's, it's interesting that television arrives in order to, or is enabled to attack the image of London that had largely been created by cinema, um, cinema of the high 60s. What we find also, I think, is that London during the 1960s is increasingly being portrayed in, in radically different and even contradictory ways. This is what I've tried to illustrate with some, these examples. None of the films I've talked about really is a, a landmark film. None of them are films that trade on images of Piccadilly Circus, the famous Buckingham Palace, the traditional images of London. Uh, in fact, if, if landmark London does appear in any of these films, it usually appears in a rather ironic, um, upstaged way. That's an image from the Ipcress file. On the left there, you can see the Albert Hall behind. And basically what Ken, Ken Adam and the film's makers did was to plonk an entirely bogus uh, telephone kiosk down. There is no such kiosk, but it makes a good shot. So this is really kind of adding to the reality of those steps at the back of at the Albert Hall. And in uh, The Knack, uh, we have a scene where the Michael Crawford and uh, another character are carrying a bed, a, a, a true 60s cast iron bedstead down the back steps of the Albert Hall. So this is really sending up the images, the icons of um, landmark London. And I think what these films demonstrate, I would argue, is one of the um, fundamental cultural functions of cinema. If we step back and try to think, well, what is happening in this corpus of films that make up 
60s cinema, uh, 60s London cinema, it's um, a process of revising and reviving our sense of, play, of space and place. And I have taken quite a lot of inspiration in thinking about this from the sadly late uh, cultural geographer Doreen Massey. Doreen Massey was one of the, the great figures in cultural geography in Britain. She died sadly, I, just I think a couple of years ago, uh, untimely. She wrote a whole series of books arguing about the importance of space and place. Uh, probably her most famous book is Space, Place and Gender. But in this bu- uh, book, For Space, she makes quite a dense statement, I think, about the importance of space. And I love this phrase that she uses. Perhaps we could imagine space as a simultaneity of stories so far. It's been traditional to speak of cinema as if cinema is all about character and plot. We commonly think of cinema as being, above all, the art of of character and plot. And if we go a bit further, then it's usually described as a time machine. Well, of course, it is a time machine to some extent. What are we doing when we're watching films like these? We're watching the London of 50 years ago. That's a kind of time machine, certainly. But it's also a space machine. And I think cultural geographers like Massey and others remind us that um, space is something we don't often think about. But I would argue that what cinema does is to immerse us in spaces that we're not currently in, spaces that we might know from real life, or they might never have visited, but we visit them through cinema. So in that sense, it's a space machine. And I would say that um, the pr- this process of picturing and navigating spaces, which happens when we watch a film, is just as important as the processes of, of following plots and following characters. And the London of 60s British cinema and of filmic television, like the play for today in the Wednesday play, is a very important chapter in the long history of imagining this city. Now that's really the the end of what I have to say tonight. I'm very open to some questions if anybody has any questions. But I just want to, if I may, do a little (coughs) advertisement. (laughs) I think some of you uh, were um, involved, uh, were were present for the, the lecture I did on Robert Paul a few weeks ago. And I I think some of you just might be interested to know that the lecture that we, uh, the, the exhibition that I spoke about then is now open uh, in a part of London that you might not have visited, which is, um, I was amazed when we had an opening weekend this last weekend, how many people said that they were in Tottenham and in Bruce Castle Museum for the very first time. It, it feels for many like an, an un, unvisitable area, but it's not. It's very interesting indeed, uh, historically, and scenically, and if you feel inclined to make your way to Bruce Castle Museum, and that's how you can get there, uh, you'll find the exhibition is open from Wednesday to Sunday in the afternoons, and I hope some of you will take the opportunity to go and have a look, um, and where you can indeed pick up uh, a copy of the graphic novel that was promised also, which accompanies the exhibition. I'm going to stop there. Thank you.